Well, let's just pray, shall we, before we open up God's Word. <clears throat> uh, Heavenly Father, as we open up uh, this first chapter of Ruth, we pray that you'd speak uh, through your Word to us, that you would apply your Word to our lives, uh, that we might be challenged, we might be encouraged. Uh, and Lord God, we would leave this place um, with uh, the desire to serve and obey you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this evening we'll be focusing on the first chapter of Ruth, and somewhat providentially there are some similar themes to uh, this morning's uh, message from, from Dave, from Matthew chapter 7. Um, in Matthew chapter 7 this morning, Dave was uh, preaching on uh, uh, the narrow and the, the wide gate, and uh, some of the language that he, he used in that is similar to some of the language we're going to use tonight. Uh, Dave taught... Um, about uh, choices, making choices and the, the choices that we make and uh, the reasons for those choices. Um, well, this evening we're going to do something uh, similar. We're going to be thinking about um, finding ourselves at crossroads uh, in our life. And when we find ourselves at a crossroad, uh, what choice do we make? Uh, so have you, I wonder, ever found yourself at uh, a crossroads um, I, don't mean, I don't mean literally, I'm sure we all have if we drive, but within your life, if you found yourself at a point where you know that you have to make uh, a choice, um, perhaps you don't know what that choice will entail, but you know a choice needs to be made. Um, and when we find ourselves at such a crossroad, we know that when that decision is made, it, it will lead to a, a sequence of events. Are you the sort of person that needs to feel in control, in control of your life, in uh, the minutiae of what is happening? How do you respond when things in life don't go your way? Or perhaps when life seems to not give you any choice at all? Perhaps when life seems to thrust you down a path that you weren't prepared for? Because, of course, no one chooses for a loved one to, to die unexpectedly. No one chooses to be involved in a, in a serious accident and find themselves with um, life-altering consequences. No one chooses to lose their job and, and find themselves perhaps financially destitute or in, in trouble. These can, and maybe often are, these can be defining moments in our lives. So the question that needs to be asked then is, well, how do you respond to trials and tribulations? When you find yourself at a crossroad and the path that you take is one that leads to some unexpected consequences, how do you respond? Well, chapter one of the book of Ruth deals with these things. It's a story of choices that have been made and also choices that are thrust upon people. It's a story of roads travelled and also of roads untravelled. It's a story that points to the consequences of the actions that are made. Because very often, the consequences that we find ourselves in are not what we expect or anticipate. So as we look at this uh, short and remarkable book uh, within God's Word, we see how our actions uh, bear consequences. 
Now this evening we're going to be looking at chapter one, and there's, there's many ways that um, as a preacher I can uh, uh, approach a text. It can be um, very much uh, in a, a slow, um, exegetical manner. We've, we've, we, we're accustomed to Andy uh, slowly going through uh, scripture verse by verse and pulling out uh, big theological truths. Sometimes we can take a, a bigger approach and we can perhaps be uh, thematic or uh, deal with a particular area of doctrine. This evening, what I want us uh, to do is to consider certainly the first 18 verses of Ruth. If we have time, we, we might do the end. Uh, but really to focus in on two key phrases that we see within uh, this text, within this story as it's relayed to us. So two key uh, phrases um, at the beginning and towards the end which really bookend um, this text for us. It's really important that as we read the book uh, of Ruth, we we don't just see it as being um, sort of a melancholic tale of fatalism. It's it's not that. It's not simply a a narrative um, that delivers some helpful home truths. It is a narrative. It it is a story. But it's not just there to, to give us some helpful hints and tips. This book is, of course, part of God's word. And as such, it is God revealing himself and his redemptive plans and actions to us through the life and the story uh, that we read. And as a result, as we read this book, as we read this story, we see that the lives of the characters involved and and our lives as well as we seek to reflect and apply uh, to ourselves are not simply just the consequences of random acts and events. But rather, the succession of events that we see in the book of Ruth, the succession of events that we see in our own lives, are shaped and nurtured by a mysterious and wonderful power that presides over all the variables, all of the crossroads, all of the pathways, that our lives encounter. And that mysterious and wonderful power is the grace of God. The grace of God which directs the outcomes of all of life's events and decisions and is the ultimate defining element of our lives. So as we look at this first chapter uh, this evening, I want us to bear that in mind. Keep that uh, at the forefront of our mind. That the power of the grace of God uh, directs all of these outcomes, and not only within the lives of the characters that we see in the book of Ruth, but in our own lives as well. So I said there's going to be two um, phrases that I'm really going to focus on uh, this evening. The first one is this. It's the very first phrase that we read in the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled. So we read in verse uh, 1, the first uh, two verses in fact, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. Now that's not just an introduction to the book. It, It is an introduction to the book, of course it is. But it's not just that. 
And the phrase that we see at the start of Ruth chapter 1 is not just... um, it's not just a timestamp. It's not just there to indicate when this book was written and uh, to helpfully put it within a, a biblical time, uh, timeline. Although, again, it, it does do that. But rather, it is a theological description of the character and spiritual health of the times in which this book was written. It's not just telling us that it was written in the days of the judges. That's that's useful information, that's helpful, it gives us some biblical context. But actually this phrase, in the days when the judges ruled, is much deeper. You see, the days in which the judges ruled was a time of chaos. It was a time of chaos that is illustrated to us by the last verse in the book, that precedes the book of Ruth. So if you turn in your Bibles, back one simple page, before Ruth, we have the book of Judges. And the very last verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21, verse 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, in the book of Judges, we see an awfully familiar cycle on repeat. It always starts the same way. It starts with the people of God rebelling. But it isn't a political rebellion or a a military rebellion. The rebellion takes the form of sin. The people of God rebel against God. And so God responds to the people... In judgment. And in turn, the people then repent and cry out to the Lord. But as we read through the book of Judges, we see that although that cycle happens repeatedly time after time, the last step starts to diminish. And the people stop repenting. They jump straight from rebellion to judgment to crying out. But God, in his grace, sends a redeemer to meet the needs of the people to restore their relationship with God. Now, in the first instance, that redeemer figure is a judge, hence why we have the book um, of Judges. And it's a judge who will rule with fairness and authority according to the word of God. But sadly, as we read through the book of Judges, those redeemer figures quickly lose their authority. They lose their luster. (coughs) The first judge that we read about, Athenial, was a good and noble judge. So we read about him in chapter 3. When the people of Israel were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, uh, they forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and the Asheroth. Well, we read in verse 9, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othaniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He was a good judge. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he did what was right. But the competency of the judges sent by God had declined to such an extent <coughs> that the final judge, Samson, 
was a complete failure. He defied everything that the set-apart Nazarenes were supposed to be. So instead of avoiding contact with anything that was dead, as he was supposed to, remember, he scoops honey out of the corpse of a lion. Instead of being separate from the Philistines, he intends to marry one. Instead of uh, avoiding alcohol, he gets heavily drunk. And although in the end, he ends up bringing judgment upon the enemies of God's people, it's an unsatisfactory ending, isn't it? Because yes, Samson is able to, um, in, a, in a great act, uh, as his strength is restored, uh, bring down the building upon God's enemies. There's no sense of restoration. There's no sense of rest. There's no sense of peace. You see, in the days when the judges ruled was a very dark time for the people of God. The people would sin. God would send enemies against them. The people would cry out for help and God would mercifully raise up a judge to deliver them. Again and again and again and again, the same cycle of behavior. The people rebelled and for all outward purposes, God's righteousness and glory within the people of Israel was failing. But what the book of Ruth does for us is it gives us a glimpse of the hidden work of God during the worst of times. How God moves in remarkable and mysterious ways. So let's first consider the first five verses of Ruth. It all begins with a man called Elimelech. An Israelite man who does the unthinkable. He moves his family to the land of Moab. Now, that's not, um, I was trying to think of uh, an equivalent. Uh, That's not like the unthinkable of a, of a man moving his family from Cardiff to Swansea, or the other way around. It's not like that. It's not, it's not a, a rivalry. A, um, it's not a sporting context. No, he is taking his family from God's promised land to a land of foreigners, explicitly against what God has said. Well, why does he do it then? Surely he has a good reason Well, he does it because there is a famine in Judah. Now, perhaps you might think, well, that seems to be a a reasonable reason. There's a a famine in in Judah. Of course, he needs to uh, supply the needs of his family. He's got to do what he can do. But Elimelech, Naomi, their sons, knew good and well what was the cause of such a famine. They knew that God is sovereignly sovereignly in control of all things. And that when there was a time of famine that came upon the people of Judah, it was God acting in judgment against the people. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 3 and 4, we read, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your reins in their season, and the land shall yield its increase. You see, when the reins were withheld, it was the hand of God withholding them. Elimelech has a choice to make. And the choice is this. Stay in Bethlehem, mourn the sin surrounding him and his people and his family, and trust in the living God, or leave the promised land in search for greener fields where food was abundant. 
Because it isn't just a geographical issue. It's not a question of whether we can better serve the Lord in Cardiff or in Newport or in Swansea or in Aberystwyth. It was an active decision to leave God's promised land and go to the land of Moab, a pagan land with foreign gods. And deeper than that, it was an active decision to disobey God, to turn their backs on the living God, on his promises, on his blessings, in search for an immediate solution to the problem at hand. It was short-term thinking. Rather than looking at the promises of God, rather than looking at God's covenantal promises that he had made through the generations, rather than going back through the stories of how God had delivered his people out of Egypt into the promised land and trusting that he was in control, rather than that, Elimelech looked at the problem at hand and turned his back on the living God. Because God had called his people to be a separate people, a holy people, separate and apart from the surrounding lands. The God that had delivered his people from Egypt called them to the land of Canaan. That was the whole point of them leaving Egypt. That was the whole point of their time in the wilderness as they, as they went on the journey to reach the promised land. God had called Elimelech to live in Bethlehem. He had no business uh, being in Moab. And what makes it uh, worse, uh, in, a, in a sense, for Elimelech? We know that names have great meanings. And very often in the Bible, um, names have particular meaning. Well, the name Elimelech means my God is king. So his own name was literally meant my God is king. But it would appear from his actions that God was no more the king of Elimelech's own heart than it was for any of the peoples uh, around him. There was no king in Elimelech's life. In the days when the judges ruled, he chose the road to Moab. So when Elimelech dies in verse 3, and, and all, we, or all we read is, is that he dies suddenly, what else could Naomi feel but the judgment of God following her and adding to her grief uh, within the famine? And Elimelech's death placed the, the family at another crossroads. At this point in time, in the middle of verse 3, Naomi and her two sons could have repented and chosen to return to the promised land and their own God. Or they could have chosen to stay in Moab, where they were exiles. Well, sadly, the road that they chose was to stay put. They regarded their chances of success as being greater in Moab than in Judah. And then in verse 4, we, we read uh, further that Naomi's two sons take Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. And again, the hand of God falls upon them. Verse 5 sums up Naomi's tragedy after 10 years of, of childless uh, marriages. Both Marlon and Chilion died. So the woman was bereft, bereft of her two sons and her husband. 
Now, in those five verses, let's just think about what Naomi has, has been through. A famine. A move to the pagan land of Moab. In doing so, turning her back, along with her family, on the living God. The death of her husband. The marriage of her sons to foreign wives. Their deaths. Blow after blow, tragedy after tragedy. And again, in verse 5, Naomi finds herself with a fresh crossroad, a fresh decision to make. But this time, she's alone. She is in a foreign country. She's away from God's promised land. She's away from her people. Her husband has died. Her sons have died. All she has left is two Moabite daughter-in-laws. In the days when the judges ruled, God's activity involved both blessing and judgment. And those who rebelled against him, those who turned their backs on him and did what seemed right in their own eyes, saw their life turned upside down and along unwanted paths. Those who truly repented and turned back to the living God found him ready to forgive. So that was our first consideration in the days when the judges ruled. Well, our second consideration is this, second key phrase within this text. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. We find that in verse 16. So Naomi, as I just said, found herself at another crossroad. She's she's all alone in a foreign land. She has no, um, no, she has a daughter-in-law with her, but she has no family with her. She decides to go back to Bethlehem because she hears in verse 6 that the Lord has visited his people and given them food. Well, what will she do then with her two Moabite daughter-in-laws? What will be the right thing for her to do? Would it be to, to take them back with her to Bethlehem or to leave them uh, in the land of Moab? Well, it seems that to begin with, uh, Orpah and Ruth go with uh, Naomi, and uh, they certainly go part of the journey together. But in verses 8 to 13, we see Naomi trying to persuade them to go back home. Well, what is it that the two women should do? Should they stay in Moab? Should they return with Naomi? While Bethlehem was once Naomi's home, it was never theirs. While Naomi would have been able to return in some kind of a state to her own people. They were not uh, Ruth and Orpah's people. There were practical considerations for Naomi to consider. Perhaps as she's walking along the path with her two daughter-in-laws, she's playing out the scenarios in her head. There are practical things to consider. There were two more mouths to feed. Two more bodies to clothe and house. As a widowed woman, it would stretch an already tight budget that really she didn't know how she was going to support anyway. There were deeper uh, considerations as well for Naomi. Uh, Along with her husband and children, she'd she'd fled God's promised land. She'd rejected his sovereignty. And so going back, taking these two Moabite women with her, would have been a physical reminder of, of the sin of her and her husband and her children in leaving the promised land and allowing their sons to marry outside of the covenant people. No wonder then the decision was so fraught with with consequences and and, and perhaps it took a while for her to come to. But eventually she does. 
We get to it in verse 8. I don't know how long the, the journey took to get to that point and how long she debated with herself as to what to say to her two daughter-in-laws. But we get in verse 8 to verse 13, the point when Naomi has made her decision about what she thinks should happen. And we get uh, five verses that really help us to understand this passage um, by seeing Naomi's reaction to her two daughter-in-laws. There are three things for us to consider. Uh, Firstly, within these verses, Naomi's misery is laid bare, is made clear to us. Uh, For example, in verse um, 11, Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? In other words, what Naomi is saying is, I've got nothing to offer you. I've got nothing to give you. My condition is worse than yours. I've got nothing that I am able to give to you. She's telling them that, look, if if you try and be faithful to me, if you try and be faithful to the memory of, of your husbands, you're going to find nothing but pain. Because there's no hope. And as she concludes in verse 13, uh, she concludes with a note of exceeding bitterness. Because she realises, she says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's saying, don't come with me because I know that God is against me. Your life will become as bitter as mine is. So we see something of of, of Naomi's struggle and and her opening up uh, her her misery and her bitterness. The second way in which these verses are helpful to us to understand this passage um, is that it gives us a little preview of an important custom in Israel that actually, eventually, according to God's wonderful providence and by his grace, turns out to be Naomi's salvation. But at this point, she doesn't realise. Because the custom that she alludes to within these verses was that when an Israelite husband died, his brother or a near relative was to marry the widow and continue the brother's name. We can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And in verse 11, when she says, um, have I yet sons in my womb that that may become your husbands? She's referring to that. She's saying, well, look, I haven't got any more. There's no one for you to marry. She thinks that it's hopeless for Ruth and Orpah to remain faithful and committed to the family name. Uh, And maybe it's because of the trauma that she's been through. Maybe it's because of um, just the the inner conflict that she's been been weighing up. Maybe it's just the length of time that she's spent away from God's people and the promised land. But what's extremely evident in these verses as we read the rest of the book of Ruth is not only... Is she despondent and despairing and full of bitterness? She is also totally wrong. Because actually, as we read the rest of the book of Ruth, it turns out that there is another relative. There is somebody by the name of Boaz who might perform this act, who might perform uh, this act of redemption. And this is an important lesson for us to understand here as we think about Naomi and the way in which she responds to these two Moabite daughter-in-laws. It can be very easy, can't it, that when we feel that God is against us, that God has turned himself away from us, it can be very tempting 
to allow ourselves to fall into hopelessness, to allow ourselves to slip deeper and deeper into the mire, to become like Naomi and allow bitterness to eat at us and overwhelm us, to become so bitter that we can't see the rays of sunlight that poke through. Naomi couldn't see that, okay, yes, she she could see that God's hand had been against her in judgment. But she hadn't seen and she hadn't recognised that it was God who had broken the famine in order for her to be able to go home. She hadn't seen and she hadn't recognised, and she's still in denial at this point, that God had provided a kinsman in order to restore Naomi's line. And she hadn't yet seen and understood that God, the God of grace, is able to provoke the heart of the individual. She was so focused on herself and her own issues and her own trials and her own tribulations, she hadn't even thought of how God might work in the lives of these two Moabite women. She's so embittered by God's judgment, she can't see his mercy at all in her life. Well, the final reason that these verses um, from 8 to 13 that Naomi proclaims are so helpful to us is that not only uh, do they show us Naomi's state, show her desperation, not only do they point to God's plan, uh, not only for Naomi, but God's redemption plan, they also help us to see Ruth's faithfulness. Because Ruth's faithfulness is juxtaposed to Naomi's bitterness. Verse 14 says that Orpah, listening to Naomi, hears everything that she has to say, and weeps with her, and then kisses Naomi and leaves. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. Not even another appeal that we see in verse 15, where Naomi says, see, your, your sister-in-law's gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Not even an additional um, appeal can get Ruth to leave. And Ruth's response is incredible in light of Naomi's grim and downcast and bitter response. You see, Ruth stays with her in spite of an apparent hopeless situation. Uh, Despite what, uh, as far as Naomi is concerned, is the certainty of a life spent as a widow and of childlessness. Naomi painted an extremely bleak and bitter future for Ruth. And yet Ruth, instead of turning away, took her hand and walked with her. The amazing words that Ruth delivers in response fly fast in the face of despair that we see in Naomi. Ruth said, verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. From where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. Well, what is it that makes these words spoken by Ruth so powerful and wonderful and glorious? Ruth was a nobody. It's not that she was um, a great person, therefore what she had to say had great standing. 
It wasn't that she was a, a magical orator who could spin yarns with her words. No, she was, she was a nobody. She was an outsider. She was a Moabite woman of all things. She must have known that she wouldn't be welcome back in Bethlehem. Surely the sensible thing to do for Ruth would be to join Orpah in returning to Moab. It would have been the most secure thing to do. Perhaps she might have been able to remarry and, uh, and restart her life. Perhaps she ought to have taken the same road as Elimelech took a few years earlier. The easy route, the immediate response to the problem at hand. But Ruth is not like Orpah. She's not like Elimelech. She would not let Naomi go. She would not let her go into an em- what appeared like an empty and oblique future by herself. Instead, verse 14, she clung to her. Now, here the text uses an interesting uh, verb. The verb clung uh, that we have here is the, uh, the word davak. And it's used elsewhere in Genesis chapter 2, where we read these words. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, I haven't misread that. I haven't misquoted. That's the same verb that's used where Ruth clung to Naomi is the same word that is then translated as hold fast in Genesis 2.24 that describes the union of marriage between a a man and a woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see, it's, it's a verb that's translated into English slightly differently in two ways, but it's a word that describes the bond of covenant. It's a word that gives great power to Ruth's assertion. When she says, your people shall be my people, and your God my God, She's not saying, your people shall be my people until I get a better ticket. Your God shall be my God until I find a more powerful one. She is tying herself entirely to Naomi. She is making a covenantal commitment to her that cannot be readily broken. It's not just about relocating home to Ruth. It's not just about uprooting herself from one country to another. It wasn't even just a a noble self-sacrifice. Ruth is committing her life to Naomi. She is clinging to Naomi. And much more than that, she is committing the whole of her life to the whole of Naomi's. To Naomi's journey. To Naomi's house. To Naomi's people. To Naomi's God. Ruth is binding herself to Naomi. Now, the more we ponder these words, the more amazing they become. Because her commitment to her destitute mother in law, who has absolutely nothing going for her, is remarkable. Because it means that Ruth has to leave her own land and her own family. It means that knowing that a life of widowhood and childlessness exists as her future, she, she carries on anyway. She is making a commitment to Naomi's family, despite the apparent knowledge that there is no one else out there that can help her to carry on the line. It means her going to an unknown land and an unknown people with an unknown language, or a new language, certainly. 
And she makes it even a stronger commitment. Where you die, I will die. But amidst those words that Ruth speaks, the most striking uh, commitment, the most striking, uh, striking way in which she clings herself to Naomi are those words, your God will be my God. Because remember, in verse 13, Naomi had just finished telling Ruth and, and Orpah, telling Ruth why she should go away. She said this, My daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So everything that she just said to Ruth was full of bitterness about God. And yet Ruth responds with such commitment. Now, Naomi may may well have been on the receiving end of of, uh, God's judgment and, and had responded in such a way. But within Ruth, we see her clinging to the God of the people of Israel, despite everything going against her. Well, a few points of application to finish. There are a few lessons that we can take from the three main characters that we see in this this, uh, first chapter. Firstly, Elimelech's lessons. Are there times in your life an easier road to travel? You see, he was so desperate to solve his immediate problem, Elimelech lost sight of the covenantal promises of God. And that's not just about making a poor choice. We, We all oftentimes make poor choices. Despite knowing the promises of God, Elimelech chose disobedience. Well, what are we called to do? We are called to worship the living God with all our hearts, to serve him as we should individually, as families, uh, corporately, as the local church. We are called to witness the gospel to the world around us. We might not be facing a a famine at present, but I'm sure each of us can um, apply these great truths to our own lives and see how we ought to be uh, responding to the the, the pathways that are put in front of us by being faithful uh, to the living God. Well, what can we learn from Naomi? How do you respond in times of affliction? Are you quick to become downcast? Are you quick to despair? Are you quick to allow yourself to become um, enthralled with bitterness? Well, bitterness should not be a characteristic of the Christian, should it? It should not be a characteristic of those who know and love the Lord. In times of toil and of turmoil, the Christian would do well to remember that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is a God of covenantal promises. He's a God who holds fast to his promises and a God who has promised that the very mo- from the very moment of the fall that he would restore his people to themselves, to, to himself. It's important that we, we don't become like Naomi that we don't allow ourselves to become downcast, but rather in those times when we feel our hearts being heavy, we raise our heads to see Ruth's greatest son, the Redeemer who accomplished all of God's redemptive plans. Well, finally, what do we learn from Ruth? Well, oh, to be like Ruth, each and every one of us. The one person in the story so far who seems the unlikeliest to be faithful to God is the one who so clearly and radically demonstrates his grace in her life. 
It is Ruth who demonstrates a profound understanding of the promises of God. It is Ruth who trusts in his sovereign authority. And where that comes from, we we don't know. Perhaps her husband, in the the ten years of their marriage before his death, was able to tell her about the good news of the God who had delivered his people from Egypt. Perhaps she listened in eagerness to those stories and learned of his faithfulness. We, We don't know where it started in her life. But we do know that that faith in which she placed in the living God had great consequences. We read in Matthew chapter 1, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Oh, what a glorious reward. What a glorious reward to be the great, great grandmother of a king. This Moabite woman who was nothing, nothing at all, the great-great-grandmother of a king. And yet, if we carry on reading that genealogy, we know. I won't read it all. We'll be here all night. But as we read further down the list of names, the father and the sons, we come finally to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Despite Elimelech's unbelief, despite Naomi's bitterness, God, according to his grace, chose to use this Moabite woman as part of his great redemptive plan in sending down his son. Not as a judge, not as a king, not as a temporary redeemer, but as the judge of all things, as the king of all kings, and as the one true, perfect redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we read from this passage in the book of Ruth, we get a picture of the way in which you deal with your people. Lord God, we pray you'd help us to be faithful to you. Uh, We pray that you'd help us to see your covenantal promises for what they are, secure and steadfast and certain. Help us to obey you and to take great joy in serving you, we pray. In Jesus' name.